everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange, we like to start by asking, what are you thinking? And this week we're going to be thinking and chatting with the amazing Catherine Oxtoby. Um, Catherine has been qualified as a vet since 2000, but she completed a PhD investigating the causes and types of errors that we see in veterinary practice um, and also the effect of organisational culture. She now works uh, for the VDS um, and we talk about so many things today, um, from um, implementing human factors in, and principles in practice, but we also cover hearts, minds and cytokines. I want to say a massive thank you to the wonderful team at the VDS for supporting this podcast today. We really do appreciate your support and it has been an absolute joy in chatting and working with you. In our clinical segment today, we round off our chat about coagulation, um, touching on kind of some of the treatment options. So for those of you that have been following our exciting coagulation series, uh, sadly that is coming to an end. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. We're very excited to have you here. I am um, just uh, doing my very limited preparation for the podcast. I was reading a little bit about you, but I think it's much better if you maybe um, can just share with the listeners a little bit about yourself. And I think most um, importantly, your kind of um, your veterinary background, if that's okay. Yeah, sure, Scott, of course. So, um, so yeah, hi, everybody. I uh, I qualified as a vet. I want, was a typical vet, I suppose. I wanted to be a vet since I was about eight years old. Um, managed to get into vet school with a weird combination of A-levels. So I actually did art and English back in 1995. Um, so that was less uh, less normal, I think, back then, if you like, uh, not to do straight sciences. So I'm a bit of a split personality type anyway. Um, but anyway, got into Bristol Vet School, absolutely loved it, had a whale of a time, uh, qualified, went out and worked in practice for about 15 years, married a vet. So I'm married to um, Tom, who's a, a farm vet. He's a director at a large farm animal mixed practice in Wiltshire, where we live. Um, and then in about 2013, I think it was, I just thought, oh, I didn't know what I want to change. I'd had a couple of babies. Um, I was working part time and I just wanted to do something a bit different. So I went and did a PhD at Nottingham Vet School, looking at the reasons why vets and nurses make mistakes, um, particularly mistakes which cause harm to their patients. Absolutely loved the whole experience, um, having never considered myself to be an academic in any way. Uh, really, really loved the PhD. It was a very qualitative PhD, so I got to spend an awful lot of my time talking to vets and nurses, which I loved. Um, and it just opened up loads and loads of new doors um, and new subjects and fields that I'd never experienced before and, and was a brilliant, brilliant experience. I would highly recommend to anybody who's thinking about it. Um, so off the back of that, then I had got some data for my PhD from the Veterinary Defence Society, the VDS. Uh, they'd helped me out with a little bit of data at the beginning and I'd kept in touch with them. And at the end of the PhD, I had a chat with what I'd found out and what I thought maybe we could do with that. And, and that's how I ended up working for VDS. Um, so I've been them, with them now for nearly five years and I'm now head of underwriting and pricing at the VDS. So I look at veterinary risk. So you can sort of track that back to what I was looking at in the PhD and, and things going wrong and how do we mitigate against that and how do we look at that and and bucket it and analyze it and, and understand it, you know, hopefully so we can try and prevent it for the benefit of our patients and our clients and, and ourselves actually. So it's a 
certainly wasn't planned but it's been an exciting an exciting route to where I am right now. Um, so so, so this is such an interesting journey then that you've had. A journey, we always talk about journeys, is that a bad word? I never know. Anyway, you've been, so you've been on one, uh, whether you like it or not. Um, so you've made, you made this decision to do the PhD and I always think that that's a really interesting decision. It, it seems for me an obvious decision for some people you know those that are very much kind of I don't know academic track type people and you're not going to really get anywhere in academia although we're not meant to say it but you're really not going to get anywhere that you really want to be without a PhD so you but you kind of went into that in a sort of slightly different way and also I'm also really interested when people do PhDs that are not about cytokines (laughs) or absolutely like or like um whatever other random molecule you know because I've just I just had a friend who's finished doing a PhD on something very specifically to do just with a neutrophil and which is very cool but you've you've you know doing doing a PhD in something very different so just talk a little bit about those that decision making you know and 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 that process yeah it's an interesting one actually because people often sort of say to me my god that was so brave that you you went and did a PhD and, and actually it didn't feel brave at all it, it 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 I was in a point where I was um I, I suppose I I was very happy being a vet I enjoyed my job I worked with some really lovely lovely people but I was sort of thinking do I want to be doing this exact thing in 20 years no I don't um and and so what else can I do so I suppose I was I was sort of looking around and thinking you know where am I going to go from here um, partly because I'd had my kids, they were getting to the age where they were going to school, so I could probably maybe focus a bit more on, on my career and myself a little bit more. So that that was sort of floating to the top again that I kind of thought, well, where do I want to be in sort of 10, 15, 20 years? Um, and I suppose it was from a couple of conversations with friends who'd gone and done PhDs and who'd enjoyed the experience. And and I, you, you sort of say it's an academic thing. I mean, I absolutely do not consider myself to be an academic type. I, I'm I'm really not. I'm not mm-hmm. the sort of person who probably would enjoy a PhD on cytokines because I'm I'm not a details person. I'm not a. Um, <laughs> I, I just don't consider myself to be very good actually at that kind of, very kind of focused kind of scope I suppose I'm, I'm more of a generalist I guess mm. um mm-hmm. and I actually just didn't realize that you mm. could do PhDs like that I thought you did have to do PhDs that were very very focused and, and narrowly mm. focused on a specific thing um anyway I saw an advert I, I started looking literally on findaphd.com and I saw an advert that just popped out at me um that said it was it was um looking at this a PhD that was pre-funded that had been organized to look into the reasons why vets and nurses made mistakes and I applied for it and I, and I got I got the gig um, thinking, well, you know, what, if I hate this, it's three years and I can do three years and then I'll come out of it with a PhD and I'll go back to being a vet or I'll go somewhere mm. else. So I just kind of went into it with a very open mind, mm. I suppose. Um, and as it turned out, it, it was it was absolutely brilliant fun. And it's just opened up this whole world mm. of patient safety, human health care, um, mm-hmm. got me out of the vet bubble, made mm-hmm. me look at other industries and how other people do things, which I loved. Mm but always Mm -hmm. kept rooted in my veterinary background. Mm -hmm. So um, I think I've been very lucky, really. Yeah. No, I, there's, yeah, so just a few things to pick up on there. I think, actually, I do think, I think whoever said to you, you were brave. I do think there is bravery in stepping outside the vet bubble in that kind of classic way. Mm. Um, I think you're brave. And also (laughs) taking the PhD pay cut. I mean, that's all. Well, yeah. (laughs) 
Though, to be honest, that's always brave. Actually, when you do the maths, as a part time vet, which is what I was, when you actually work out the maths, yeah. it wasn't a massive pay cut. And that was a massive thing. That was a huge, that, that was something that could well have been a barrier. And, and I did have to work out the maths, but, but it actually, and it, it wasn't even a veterinary enhanced stipend. Mine was a basic stipend. So, you know, it, it isn't necessarily a barrier. And I think that's important for people listening that may that may be kind of thinking that I suppose you know actually it's there there yeah and and certainly it's these are definitely opportunities people should should look at. I, I I was also really interested in what you said about the fact that you know I'm I'm here I am being a vet and I'm not necessarily that unhappy doing this, but can I see myself doing this in twenty years? And I think that almost for me encapsulates how a lot of people are potentially going to be feeling listening to this conversation and i think all and i think that's where the value in understanding the diversity in our degree is really really important and and i think you know that it it was actually when we were talking to ebony uh, uh, uh you know on the podcast as well ebony from vetstego diversify she was saying a sort of similar thing where actually uh, some of the, first of all, some of the challenges that we are facing are not unique to the vet bubble. And actually it's important to see (laughs) that that, that there are similar challenges in other professions. We just don't see it because we're in the bubble. Very much. Um, And all, you know, and all, and that's important and empowering to know that you're not alone in that way. But, but also she's the ultimate champion for, um, doing the squiggly path or whatever she said I love <laughs> that you know that squiggly path um, and so I think there's that's so valuable you know to see that you can end up wherever you like and 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 there's lots of, of ways of doing that um, so you've ended up obviously working uh, for the Veterinary Defence Society yeah Um I I think as much as we shouldn't many many veterinary professionals will see the Veterinary Defence Society as one particular thing mm-hmm. And that might be the people that you phone when you're in a bit of a pickle. Absolutely. <laughs> so <laughs> now you're going to tell me that that's not the only thing <laughs> that the Veterinary Defence Society do. So tell me, so you're not maybe involved with that kind of frontline in a pickle <laughs> scenario. So tell us a little bit more about, I suppose, some of the other amazing things that the VDS do and, and some of the stuff that you're involved involved in. Yeah, so yeah, I think you're right. I think that's what a lot of people sort of see the BDS is people call us the fourth emergency service. So absolutely, when when something's gone wrong, when you've had a complaint, when you're really worried that you've either done something, you've been asked to do something, and you're thinking, oh, I don't know which side of the line I stand with this. Absolutely, that's why we're there. You pick up the phone and you talk to one of the claims advisors or claims consultants, and like you say, that's not me. I'm not on the front line, but those guys are fantastic because they. I've heard it all, they've seen it all, they're massively reassuring and they can help people out. And I think that's hugely, hugely valuable to people in practice. So, so there's that immediate sort of um, reaction, I suppose, reactive response, if you like, to things either when they've gone wrong or, or you know, potentially have gone wrong. Um, but we're also really involved with mitigating risks before they happen. So trying to put things in place to make people aware of what they can do, either as individuals or as practices, or even as a profession, to try and prevent things from going wrong in the first place. We're not just about cleaning up the mess and helping people clean up the mess when things have gone wrong, which absolutely is one very important part of what we do. 
um, we're also there to try and prevent things from happening in the first place so that you don't get yourselves into that situations and so you know errors don't hit the patients and clients don't get unhappy so we do an awful lot of, of proactive and preventative work through training um, communication skills training is what we're very well known for and we've done for a long long time but also to those sort of broader range of non-technical skills so vets are very good at their clinical knowledge their clinical stuff it's sometimes the delivery of those skills where we're not traditionally taught very much about things like professional leadership situational awareness communication um, with each other not just with the client um, so we we do an awful lot of that kind of thing and then we also do a lot of data analysis so we look at claims data we look at we're starting to look at um, adverse event reporting data with our VetSafe, which is our new tool that we launched a couple of years ago. Um, and again, that's very much there as a, a, a risk mitigating um, factor that we try to do. So it's partly that, and it's also just looking after people in the profession, being that person that you can talk to, you know, completely off the record and, and, and get somebody's honest opinion, you know, who's outside of your organization, who's not involved with you in your career, who can just give you very honest, professional advice mm. I think one of the problems from from my perspective and I'm sure this is something you've heard one of the biggest issues is that I think for whatever reason and I don't I, I don't know what those reasons are there will be multiple we are conditioned as veterinary professionals to believe sometimes wholeheartedly that we just should not be making mistakes yep. and therefore making mistakes is extremely devastating Absolutely. you know in the moment yep. of, of, of and i wonder you know I, i've i've listened to other people speak from particularly the medical profession and actually we're looking at this the wrong way you know we are going to make mistakes we need to then um think about how we navigate and as you said sort of try and reduce that as much as possible but there has to be an acceptance as human beings that we are going to make mistakes. So how have we got ourselves into this mindset and this position where we just feel that we shouldn't be doing anything wrong at all? Yeah, I think that's one of my favorite topics, actually. You might have to stop me talking about this one. Oh, right, um, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I literally didn't know that. So. <laughs> tell, tell me when to stop. Um, so I, okay. I, I kind of come across, I suppose I have two hats on when I kind of think about this. And one is one is, is my, my personal experience of being a vet and absolutely feeling like that, that I can't get this wrong because if I get it wrong, something might die and, you know, or I might get sued. I mean, more importantly, my, my patient's going to suffer and I absolutely don't want to be in a situation as a professional where I've caused that. that that's it's horrible. Um, so there's, there's that sort of level of it. And then I take that off and I put my kind of human factors trained head on and sort of absolutely agree with you that it is absolutely a given I'm going to make mistakes we all are we are just human and we're limited and there's only so much we can get it right and, and it doesn't matter that the key point is it doesn't matter whether you're doing something that is not safety critical so whether you're making a cup of tea and you make a mistake or whether you're operating on a dog and you make a mistake what you're doing even though one the consequences are so much more serious that doesn't make it any less likely that you're going to make a human error um and that's absolutely where the human um medical profession is is had a, a sort of shift in understanding a, a fundamental shift of understanding that and i'm not saying that understanding it makes it feel any less you still feel responsible you are responsible um but they have a more comprehensive understanding of that and therefore they can put things in place which can help to reduce the incidence of that human error um so I think there's there's two things in play there. There's there's that systems thinking and that understanding that actually if you look at your systems and you put your systems in place to mitigate 
the, the inevitability of human error, you're going to get better outcomes. And there is also that concept of actually we need to understand that people struggle with that idea on a personal basis because we all absolutely take accountability and responsibility for our patients as we should because we're professionals. But accountability is actually, I think, more understanding that we need to think in systems rather than tell ourselves to be more careful because telling ourselves to be more careful is going to get you absolutely nowhere changing your systems is going to help you get it right more often and your colleagues get it right more often so it's there's a, a guy in human healthcare in the states who I often quote because I think it's just the most fantastic concept so Pete Pronovost he's sort of one of the daddies of patient safety in human medicine in, in the US and he says that it's the problem with clinicians is this absolute accountability and, and feeling of responsibility for their patients is is so admirable but it's also completely myopic because it means in focusing just on ourselves and what we fail to do we don't look at the bigger picture and we don't change those systems so nothing changes moving forwards so it's it's being able to pull yourself back and, and think take yourself slightly out of that equation um and think about actually what can i do in the broader sense to stop it happening again is a really important concept for people yeah it's really it's, it's really interesting because just a couple of things you said there so first of all i think it is to do with the the i think you said quite rightly we're going to make mistakes in every part of life i think it just so happens that the mistakes that we will make have consequences on a living being and that definitely feels for me that feels different I, i've said for years and this is no disrespect to anyone that makes coffee anywhere in the world but I, I i literally often stand in starbucks there are other coffee retailers available and say you know if the worst thing that i could do in my day was to make someone's coffee wrong then I would I would I be a happier person would that be a better mistake for me because I suffer so much with how my mistakes and affect my patients you know and, and I don't know if that's a really naive way of thinking or a really ridiculous way of thinking and again it's not to be disrespectful to people that do other jobs but it does feel like that consequences is quite significant and then the other thing just 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 when you were before i forget because i get tangent tangential is that word um you were talking about systems and i thought it was really interesting because actually for the first time i made quite a significant clinical error recently to do with uh, uh over, significantly overdosing chemotherapeutic medication um which which made the dog very very unwell and that was absolutely my error um and actually my line manager said to me um so this is terrible what do we need to do as a hospital to make sure that this does not happen again he said this is not your fault this is a systems and procedures issue we should have something in place to make sure that this can never happen and i'd never ever heard say, someone say that to me before and i'd never thought about it like that before and do you know how much better that made me feel <laughs> like do you know what i mean but i'd Absolutely. never i never i would i would have just beaten myself with that chemotherapy stick yeah. oh my god absolutely you know? oh completely and i've been there myself i, I completely appreciate that. and that that is exactly that sort of meiosis that that pete pronovos is, is referring to in that is that that's what we do we, we we go home and we sit on the sofa and we beat ourselves over the head with what we did or didn't do and and, and the consequences of it and actually what a fantastic line manager to understand that actually it's not about you know it's not about blaming the per it achieves absolutely nothing what will achieve something is what can we as a team learn from this not just you as a clinician what can we as the wider team and the wider organization learn from this and how can we get better off the back of this thing that's happened and i, I do think that's really important for 
the individual involved as well, because it means something positive comes out of a negative experience. You know, you, you, yeah, it, it's a horrible thing to happen for everybody involved and you, you're not going to change that. But you can in some way make it more positive for somebody. They can reflect on it and see actually some good has come of that. And I think that's really important for people when they are dealing with the emotion around being involved with a mistake as being a clinician. I think that that can really be helpful for people. So big up to your line manager. But but that absolutely comes from from that, that concept of human factors and systems thinking. The problem I think is so I think and this all sounds extremely positive and I'm so pleased that there that we're 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 making you know progress in in, in looking at things in this sort of way. I suppose that the 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 problem comes that that still people take these events, whether it be overdosing medication or something, a negative event like that happening in your career, people take that regardless take that so deeply personally and uh, uh, that actually sometimes it feels like these there's irreversible damage being done by these events you know and people are uh, uh, and that's what's causing people to just to to leave the profession or to change direction is there is there anything that we can do about that that scar that is there any way of 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 taking away that permanent effect that we have through these um events that's a really really interesting question and it's I don't have any evidence at the minute that we we do have some people sort of looking into that in a bit more depth actually um but in terms in the veterinary profession you know how can we how can we help that how can we move people through that there's there's a lot of evidence in human medicine for clinicians involved in areas where they've actually mapped the kind of stages that people go through clinicians go through when when they've been involved in an adverse event that's harmed a patient and and they come to this conclusion that people fall into three categories at the end of it they have people who um leave drop out walk away don't ever want to put themselves in that situation again they have people who they survive so they keep going but it's always this awful thing that happened, it's always got a sort of negative, you know, sinking feeling in the pity stomach when you come back to it feeling. And they have people who they describe as being people who thrive out of the back of it. And they're the ones that can turn around and say, do you know what? Yeah, it was awful, but it made me a better clinician. It made me the clinician I am today. And I think that's what we want to try and help people get to. And I think my, my opinion on this, and, I, you know, hopefully we can back it up with some research at some point, is that it's all about that conversation your line manager had with you after your particular incident. It's how do we as an organization and a business and a team react when something's happened? How do we support the clinician both emotionally and also practically? How do we learn from that? And how do we structure those conversations and those learnings so that it it can be viewed in hindsight as something which some good came out of? So I think that's that in my view is how we reduce the scar of it if you like and and help people to deal with it moving forward and and create more people who who reflect on it as something which made them a better vet um albeit it was unpleasant at the time rather than thinking i'm never going to spare bitch again because the first one i did bled you know that's what we want to get away from and that's but then i think that goes much further back i mean i'm not again i'm not it sounds like i'm trying to tell you how to do your job and i I don't know the answer (laughs) but what i'm saying is but what i'm saying is for me it's 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 about like changing that mindset from from much further back in the process and so that i suppose leads me on to my next question so we're talking about we're still we are still talking about a lot of this although it, it very much what you're doing is much more proactive rather than reactive to everything there's still going to be a degree of reactivity with all of this because some things are always going to be happening that are unexpected etc 
are you is there a role kind of going much further back in the process like not you know going back to the vet student at that stage and and kind of changing the way that we are training and developing vets so that they are not coming into the profession these like perfectionist psychopaths <laughs> just like are just like you know what i mean if i could speak to my little 18 year old self and be like listen you need to just shake off all of this now because mm. it's going to be hard <laughs> you need yeah. to just get a grip of this you know i wonder whether there's a, a place to 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 be sort of getting to people sooner yeah that's a really interesting one isn't it um i think and this is anecdotal, but I think, and again, in vets, it's anecdotal. I think there is some evidence to suggest it in, in doctors, in medics. They've looked at the kind of personality typing, which I'm not a massive fan of, but I think there's, there's definitely something there that this perfectionist tendencies and these A-list, you know, th these A-type personalities are the sort of people who step up and say, do you know what? Yes, I will take on the responsibility of being a vet or a doctor rather than taking on the responsibility of, of making a coffee in, in Starbucks. It's a different level of responsibility. And then some people will walk into that whereas other people will choose not to so they're the people that walk into vet school and, and medical school um so you're already dealing with a sort of pre-selected type of person i think who's who's pre-selected themselves into that kind of role and i i do believe that in terms of training it is it is making people understand and really believe that concept of human error, that it doesn't matter how bright you are or how much you care or how conscientious you are, that's irrelevant. You're wired the same way as everybody else and you're going to get it wrong sometimes. And, and that's okay. You know, you, it's okay in the sense that you can't stop it. But what you can do and what you should be taking responsibility for is trying to mitigate it. And, and, and as I say, that, that's that whole sort of thinking in systems and supporting your colleague when it goes wrong for the person that you're next to, you know, understanding that they didn't do it because of a lack of care or conscientiousness or knowledge. They did it because psychologically they're wired in a certain way and, and it is inevitable. So I think, yes, there's definitely, there's training that you can put in at undergraduate level, which will help them really understand that that isn't just something that's being said to make them feel better. That is just a fact. Um, and that their responsibility in dealing with it lies in a different way from just beating themselves up and being frightened to try and try things in case they get it wrong. It's, what can I do to prepare to make the chance of me getting it wrong as minimal as possible? You're never going to take away the chance of making a mistake altogether. I think that's an important message for them. And uh, yeah, but and yeah, it's getting that message through, isn't it? And then believing it, you know, because it's yeah. like, because it is, it's interesting yeah. you said they're like, oh, they're just saying that to me because they want to make me feel better. And that's not really true because actually it's me. And I, you know, I, oh, and then it just, it's just like a cycle, you know, that's madness. And um, what would you say through the kind of work um, through the work that you've done and what I love about everything that you're saying is the fact that and this is kind of testament to the fact that research does not need to be about cytokines because you're talking <laughs> you're you've talked the whole time with uh, speaking about kind of what evidence is there or not and I love that you know there's so much that we can bring to the table and it doesn't have to be on a, a science bench in a lab you know and I think that's 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 amazing that's amazing I think and um, what would you say if you were to choose one it's difficult as, as far as the kind of tools or learning uh, points that you could put in place um in practice to try and mitigate some of this what do you think some of the most powerful uh tools or or um yeah powerful tools are um 
well obviously I'm going to say vet safe <laughs> because it's yeah it's yeah it's kind of it was what fell out of the PhD it's what we've been developing for the past five years it's been out and about now for a couple of years at least it's a it's free it's a member benefit if you're a member of the VDS which most vets and nurses are it's it, it, it's a free tool for you to use it as part of your membership um, it's open to everybody in the practice it's not just vets and nurses it's open to practice managers to support staff you know to, to everybody there and it's it we've we've designed it to try and be both that hearts and mind thing so that whole thing of absolutely evidence data information is vital and, and if you're analyzing things and you're trying to understand things you absolutely need that but it's it's also that kind of wraparound sort of qualitative piece of understanding, you know, well, how are people feeling about this? You know, how can we have those conversations which are difficult to have? So built into it is not only the the, the way of gathering the data so that you can you can look at and do the analysis, but there's also the well, how do I have a conversation where we we put someone up in an M&M round and we talk about the thing they did? Even the language around it is, is kind of accusatory, as hard as you try for it not to be. So how can we help have those conversations? And that's all part of that VetSafe tool, because I very strongly believe that it has to be both things. It has to be both the, the quantitative data gathering and analysis and the qualitative understanding of where people are coming from and how people are feeling and how do we talk about this in the most positive way that will make a difference. So yeah, if I had to pick one, that, that's the one I would be because we've we've tried to address all of those things and built it in. Yeah, and just for for those of you that are not so vet safe, is obviously a, a way that that we we can report um, events um, you know in in practice that maybe didn't always go as well as we hoped, and and actually. Um, and, and from my own experience of that, you know, I can see already how powerful that kind of tool is. And and I didn't know that that kind of was part of the kind of product of what you'd done PhD wise. I mean, that's pretty cool, you know, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Just if, if, <laughs> no one's to, if, no, if no one's told you that before, that's pretty yeah. impressive. Um, so I, I think um, the one of the things I, I think, uh, you know, looking at... Um, uh, you and the team that you work with actually um uh is that there's some pretty cool people uh, uh, uh in the vds uh organization whether that you know the training side or whatever else so there's some really pretty inspiring people there um you too i'm sure have been an inspiration to very many people i wondered if you could share with us a little bit about who professionally or otherwise has been an inspiration to you oh gosh that's a really difficult one. Um, uh, oh gosh, that's a really, really tough one, actually. I mean, I think I've been really lucky that I work with people who fundamentally care both about themselves, uh, sorry, not themselves, their, their colleagues, themselves, obviously not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Um, they they fundamentally care about the people they work with and, and that's both at the VDS and it's also my experience every time I've been in practice I think people really really care in this profession about each other and I think that's really a lovely place to be and and I think also they they they're always sort of aspiring to get better and to, to do better and to push the boundaries and to think about other things and other ways of doing doing it and and so people I work with at VDS very much and and people I've worked for at VDS have, have very much sort of um 
come to work with that kind of attitude that that we can always do better we can always push ourselves we can always look to do things differently I think that's really really important um I'm trying to think of, of people that have really sort of inspired me I can't think of any sort of individuals per se I think it's it's more just that ethos that we care about people care so much about what they do and, and and about the profession that they're in and that's what drives people to push themselves to do things differently or do things better or raise their game and I think that's that's been a consistent thing with the majority of people I think that I've encountered in the veterinary profession which I think I'm very lucky for. I think it's interesting you say that because I think that's one of the things that comes out you know I, I very much agree with what you're saying like I think my my absolute kind of you know, ac across any job that I've had in the profession is to do with the fact that the people are great and they truly do care. I would completely echo that. Just, I just wonder, and again, we're not, we're not asking for people to have all the answers with it. The, the challenges that the veterinary profession are facing just now with everything that is going on and, and, and obviously with some issues surrounding retention and recruitment do you see, and it always blows my mind, we've got all these amazing people who are really caring and brilliant, but we're not quite managing to always keep them um, uh, in, in the profession, you know, as as we would like to. Do you, do you see any um, obvious answers to some of these struggles that we're facing currently? <laughs> uh, I think if I had them, I'd be rich. <laughs> <it's easy. laughs> It seems to be the, the the thing that's on everybody's mind. It's the pressure point for so many people, isn't it, at the minute? And and I think actually that comes back to what we were talking about earlier. Actually, that's not just a vet problem. I don't think that is just a vet problem. I think that's a a shift in generation. I think it's a shift in uh, the attitudes of a generation and in what they want from life, what they expect from life. I think COVID's compounded that. That's been a real sort of pressure cooker that's that's maybe accelerated some of those kind of processes. And and I think I think it comes back to um, <laughs> a really great quote. In fact, I put it in the front of my PhD because I think it's so so true um, by Grace Hopper. And she sort of said, you know, just because we've always done it this way, that's the most dangerous phrase in the English language. And and I think it, it does come back to that being open to change and new ideas and new ways of doing things and accepting that you know the ground is moving underneath us and maybe that means we have to rethink the way we do things now what that looks like I don't know but I think being open-minded to it is is the place we have to start if we're going to keep people and keep yeah. them happy make sure they're happy and I think but but I agree with that so much and I think part actually that and, and it's about the, the fact that we we are going to have to change the way that we work you know this is it comes for me fundamentally down to that you know that we are we we are going to have to change the way that vets be vets and nurses be nurses and 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 that that's a but that's a big change for something that we've done a certain way for so long but I think we are looking at kind of seismic shifts I think in kind of in working practices in order to be able to to re retain people yeah I know I, I it's, it's we always talk about what's the answer what what's the answer to this and everyone's yeah. like no <laughs> not not today. <laughs> I have no idea. No. What's and, the problem? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe start yeah. with the problem. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah, you're I absolutely think. right. You're absolutely right. So your your career has clearly taken, you know, some really interesting um uh, directions. Um in a great way that wasn't that, you know, a really great way. Um if you were to do it all again and you were sitting with your 
English and art O level or A level or whatever that sounds yeah. good. Um, yeah. Would you would you still apply to Bristol Vet School? Absolutely, one hundred percent. Absolutely, I had the time of my life. I met the best people. I've got fantastic friends. I love my profession. I yeah, there's definitely been patches in my career where I've not been as happy as I am at the minute. But I think I think it's given me. It's just open doors and it and it's it's I probably could have gone in other directions and I've gone in this one, but it gave me a platform to be in a profession I love with with as I say, people in that profession are just fantastic and, and I wouldn't swap that for anything. So yes, I absolutely would do it all again <laughs> for sure. And and Br- Bristol, I have said this before, Bristol's a pretty cool place to be a student, right? Awesome. Bristol is awesome a place. really cool place. Absolutely. Yeah. Best best, best place. <laughs> yeah, I've I've only ever been once, but I was just amazed. I was struck. So I was like, oh, this place is cool. Everyone's yeah. vegan. This is there's something cool. <laughs> oh they weren't they weren't vegan 20 years ago. <laughs> all right, okay. No. <laughs> It's all vegan hipsters now, you know, no, in, in the nicest possible way, in the nicest possible way. No, I'm, I'm joking because I, d- I did a vet shift there once and the closest restaurant was a vegan restaurant. So I was like, oh, really? wow, this must represent the whole of Bristol. <laughs> <laughs> so I've like, I've like stereotyped the whole city based on like one restaurant. <laughs> so I'm, that's a total misrepresentation of poor Bristol. No, I absolutely loved it though. Really cool, really cool place. Um, So if you were to give the people listening um one piece of advice what would that piece of advice be oh gosh oh uh, like i'm someone to give advice um you are I... you are <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult isn't it I, I think i just think keep your mind open for opportunities and go for it grab it have a go because what's the worst that can happen i think that's one of the fundamental gifts of a veterinary degree is that you can always go back and you can always pay the mortgage you can always pick up a locum shift you can always pay the bills it gives you the freedom to have a go at other things and have a pop if you want to and if it doesn't work out then fine come back to it you know it's a it's a great safety net like that so i think yeah have have a pop (laughs) have a go have fun I, i think that's probably yeah. what i would say no and i think that's really true and i love that like there's a, there the there is always a safety net and i think i've i've felt that too you know maybe not doing you know clinical practice as you know and uh, but always thinking well actually if this other stuff doesn't work out then you know mm-hmm. if i you know yeah. if i don't become an international podcast extraordinaire karen which we're trying mm. no, it's not, it's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> then <laughs> How could you not? How could I not? I know. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, it's so funny because there's a, I don't know if, if you listen to a lot of podcasts, but there's a um, podcast mm. that Chris Ramsey and his wife, um, I forget what her name is now, actually, that's really bad, um, called mm. Shag Married Annoyed. And they've become so successful <laughs> that they, um, they've become so successful that they go on tour, like stadium tours. Wow. So one, one day, Karen, <laughs> and they, yeah, they go to like, the, they go to like where pop stars go. So why, why are we not doing that? <laughs> Karen, did you sign up for that? <laughs> um, <laughs> not sure. No, absolutely not. Anyway, <laughs> okay. Um, so my final question to you is: um, What do you want to be when you grow up? Oh gosh, that's a great one. Um, what? Oh, I don't think I'm ever going to grow up. To be quite honest, I don't. I don't really want to be a grown up. Um, actually, uh, I, I don't. Who's? I don't. I I don't think I'm very good at commitment. <laughs> I I I like the fact that right. Don't don't tell your husband. Him, <laughs> he's probably outside of that one. I'm quite close to him. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. He, he I, I like I like things that change. I I I don't like the thought of being 
fixed in mm-hmm. a certain place or or sense of time so mm. um i think one of my long-standing ambitions which i i suspect i will never do was is to write a novel i would love to i love the idea of of being an author ah. but but you know not database like completely you know um imagination based i would i think that'd be a, an awesome thing to do i don't think i've got mm. the skills to do it but you never know i might have a go one day but uh yeah I'm, I'm trying my best not to grow up if I'm quite honest <laughs> well listen I look forward well I look, I look forward to reading that that's cool. I think that's really cool yeah. I, I think um I love it when people say things like that like I think that's really cool and why not you've <laughs> you've you've said it we can um we can do what we want and um whenever we want to do it so yeah I look I look forward to yeah. that um uh, come back on and talk about your novel mm-hmm. when you when you release that <laughs> I'd love to yeah <laughs> Give me 40 years or so, maybe. <laughs> okay, we'll see you soon. <laughs> Not. Um, In your stadium tour. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you can come along to that. Um, anyway, <laughs> well, listen, well, listen, thank you so much for um, taking the time to chat to us today. We really appreciate it. And and I think, actually, um, for me, an inspiring conversation for lots of reasons, not only because of the amazing work you do, but actually for the fact that you have carved out a career in this way. And I think that, for me, will speak to a lot of people. So thank you. Uh, Thank you very much. It's my absolute pleasure. It's been lovely chatting to you. Thanks for the invite. Okay, everyone. So welcome to the last in our section of clinical discussions about coagulation. And we've already kind of whizzed through all elements of coagulation. And in this last section, we're going to really talk about some of the um, potential uh, treatment options to kind of round things off. Just to kind of really summarise, you know, ultimately, as I say with many conditions, we don't always need to know definitively what's going on with every single patient. We just, and that's not going to be always possible. I think one of the key things is to have a robust diagnostic approach to scenarios particularly emergency scenarios where at least you know you've kind of covered all bases and you're not missing things and I think as far as the emergency diagnostics and and approach to suspected coagulopathies if you are fundamentally looking at a blood smear and evaluating for platelet number you can almost instantly know if platelets are potentially the problem or not from a kind of numbers point of view. In-house doing PT and APTT is going to be a really good baseline then for secondary coagulation. Blood typing early on with these patients is never the wrong thing to do because um, they may require some sort of blood transfusion product. And then additional things would be things like um, assessing for lungworm um, because we know that that can result in coagulopathic problems and so whether we're doing faecal analysis for that or doing the um, angiostrongylus or the angiosnap test those would be options that are um, maybe more readily available to us and then we spoke about assessing thrombocytopathias um, with the buccal mucosal bleeding time and the other thing at the kind of beginning of all of this I suppose is to be keeping in your mind that you may need to go on and do some other factor analysis and that could be 
individual factors or maybe von Willebrand's factor. And so it's always useful to draw blood for that purpose before you do any treatment, particularly transfusion therapy. So maybe taking some extra blood for that purpose is going to be a good idea too. As far as the question as to when to transfuse, if a dog is actively bleeding to death in front of you, or dog or cat, then obviously it's a no-brainer that that patient probably will need some transfusion uh, product, um, whether that's a product to, to, to stop the bleeding or a product to replace the blood, then that's almost certainly going to be uh, necessary when there's major bleeding, which is resulting in hypovolemia and resulting in a case that re requires transfusion of blood. And remember, the trigger for transfusion for needing to replace red blood cells is not based on, oh my God, that dog said lots of bleeding. It's based on a number of tr transfusion triggers. So we do not base our need for transfusion of, of blood products based on a number. We base it on heart rate, respiratory rate, mentation, lactate, oxygen, um, uh, you know, um, need for oxygen supplementation, these sorts of things. So there's key sort of triggers for transfusion. Transfu the need for transfusing of red blood cells post-bleed is very different from the need for transfusion support in patients with coagulation disorders. Because yes, they may lose enough blood to need blood back, but they also could have little tiny bleeds because of their coagulation disorder that are not going to necessarily result in hypovolemia. Little tiny bleeds in the brain or in the lungs are not going to cause massive loss of red blood cells or hypovolemia. But that is serious. When you're bleeding into places like the brain and the lungs, then that can still cause life-threatening bleeding and may still require transfusion support, not in the form necessarily of red blood cells, but you may need to replace those coagulation factors quickly in order to be able to stop that dog bleeding more significantly into um, very life-threatening places. As far as, and we're not gonna talk so much about this today, but as far as replacing actual red blood cells, we've got three options. We've got fresh whole blood, we've got stored whole blood, or we've got packed red blood cells. And it may be that not all of those options are available to us. The, the main difference between giving packed red blood cells and whole blood is obviously that the packed red blood cells, you're just giving back the red blood cells. And that, you know, in many cases, that's all you need to do. The whole blood will obviously also contain um, uh, other things because it's not been separated. Um, but important to remember that fresh whole blood basically has everything. So if you do want to replace actual blood cells as well as clotting factors, then fresh whole blood is the way to do that. Remember, stored whole blood, um, it's been kept in the fridge for a couple of weeks. That will not have all of the clotting factors. So the heat labile factors will have degraded in that in that um in that bag of blood. So really important to remember that um that will not necessarily contain all of the clotting factors that you might need. So when we talk about replacement of clotting factors, the transfusion products that we're really talking about are either fresh frozen plasma or frozen plasma. And they're obviously that separated part of the blood 
it's what they they get when they're making patriot blood cells that's then frozen and and it's frozen in order to protect those clotting factors fresh frozen plasma ultimately is frozen and is less than a year old and fresh frozen plasma is more than a year old but less than five years old and the fundamental difference between fresh frozen plasma and frozen plasma is that frozen plasma does not have um the heat label factors in it so it's it's um it will not have all of the factors in it if you want a one-stop shop to give back all clotting factors then really fresh frozen plasma is the way to do it fresh frozen plasma will have all the clotting factors and von willebrand's factor and therefore can be used with any disorder of secondary hemostasis frozen plasma will not have all the factors it may still have well not may it will still have some um and therefore you can probably get away with using uh frozen plasma for things like vitamin k um uh toxicities for instance but actually fundamentally if you're unsure and your PT and your APTT are both absolutely catastrophically off the scale, then really fresh frozen plasma is going to be the, the, thing, to, the thing to go for. As far as how much, um, we usually start with about 10 mils per kilogram. We would monitor the response to this transfusion like we would any other transfusion um we would I, I would give it slowly to begin with uh usually maybe in the region of half a mil uh, per kilogram um per hour um and then i would speed that up um and and you would be giving over usually uh, two to three hours but equally if you had to get it in faster because we're, we've got life-threatening problems, then you obviously can do that. Clotting factors have quite a short half-life, so you must be prepared potentially to have to give um, more than one transfusion in some patients to um, give them ongoing support. This is obviously coming straight from the freezer, and you have to obviously defrost it, but you have to do that very carefully, usually in a, a, a tepid water bath making sure that you've put a plastic bag over it um, and allowing it to defrost, certainly not um, popping it in the microwave. Um, so as I said, um, usually you would be starting these transfusions relatively slowly, so uh, 0.5 or 0.5 to a mil per kilogram per hour uh, for 20 to 30 minutes and then giving the, the rest over no more than about uh, four hours. Remember that any transfusion product like this, any blood product, is a, you know, there, it's a colloid um, ultimately. Um, and uh, so you want to be cautious of, of volume overload, particularly in cats. Um, you want to be monitoring, as I said, with any, like any other transfusion with TPRs regularly every five minutes for the first half an hour and then every 15 minutes. The main reactions, honestly, you see with plasma is going to be skin reactions. Uh, so they get kind of puffy faces or urticaria um, or changes in increases in heart rate, increases in temperature. To be honest with you, and this goes for, for red blood cell products as well, the majority of transfusion reactions like that you can be treating by... Uh, slowing it down. So the very first thing that I would do is to slow these transfusions down. Um, you maybe 
reach for things like chlorphenamine if they're getting puffy faces, um, but generally slowing the rate of the transfusion down or stopping and then starting at a slower rate is going to be the best way to manage these milder transfusion reactions. Um, people often ask about typing um, prior to, so we know we have to type bef before giving red blood cells. Do we need to type before um, uh, giving a, a plasma products? Um, probably doesn't matter as much. Um, so there was a paper recently with, with um, Neus actually, who's doing our ECC course just now, um, and she looked at this and actually it was it was deemed probably unnecessary to be typing before plasma transfusions. Just to talk a little bit, um, moving away from that, some other sort of potential strategies for intervention when it comes to coagulopathies. What about um, autotransfusion? So what if we've bled into a body cavity because of a coagulopathy? Um, certainly that's a good opportunity to potentially collect that blood from the pleural or the peritoneal space and to give it back to the animal. What I would be, um, so a couple of things. Um, so you can take that, that blood out of a body cavity and as long as you're putting it through um, some sort of inline filter, you can obviously give that back to the patient. Um, the main caveats about um, autotransfusion is if the bleed has been because of a neoplastic bleed within the abdomen, there's a bit of a question about whether you're then maybe seeding uh, neoplastic cells around the body. And I think if it's a life-saving measure, that probably is still reasonable. I think we don't have a huge amount of evidence about how that will actually change the outcome in, in, in neoplastic uh, patients. But certainly brilliant opportunity in patients that are coagulopathic. That's actually a really good opportunity to, to do autotransfusion. Um, the other indication potentially, um, or, or the, the other main sort of time that I would be um, not autotransfusing. If you have an abdominal bleed and you think that there's any chance of there being contamination from the gastrointestinal tract, then obviously you do not put that blood back in. I mean, that's a no-brainer. There's a bit of a question as to whether to um, add anticoagulant to blood that's already bled, because actually, theoretically, that blood will be deficient in um, clotting factors particularly in a coagulopathic patient, probably even more deficient in clotting factors. Um, so in those patients, I don't tend to routinely um, anticoagulate, particularly if there's an underlying coagulopathy. Um, but some people, depending on the reason for uh, the, the bleeding and, and the, the reason for the autotransfusion, will. Um, but in our coagulopathic patients, that's probably the opposite of kind of what we want to do. The other really useful um, potential treatment in many of our coagulopathic patients, and remember, many of these patients, whether that whether they are immune mediated thrombocytopenia or immune um, or vitamin K um, uh, toxicities or um, some sort of other unknown coagulation, um, we, we're often trying to do just everything we can to stop them bleeding. And a drug that is really really useful are antifibrinolytic drugs like tranexamic acid or aminocroproic acid. Now, aminocroproic acid became sort of, um, came to the fore um, when it was used in some studies um, looking at preventing that bleeding that greyhounds get often after surgery. So they get this really um, sometimes quite extensive bleeding or bruising after surgery. 
And aminocoprolic acid was shown in cases of, I think, castration and amputation to really reduce that um, uh, um, in, in greyhounds. And that's probably because of a, a defect with uh, fibrinogen in, in, in greyhounds. But what's interesting, um, um, so tranexamic acid is not just about uh, being an antifibrinolytic. For instance, it will decrease fib uh, fibrinogen fragments, which actually impair platelet function. So it may also have a positive effect on platelets. So this is not just a drug that I would be using in greyhounds. This is a drug I would honestly be using in almost every coagulopathy that I'm seeing through the door, whether that be immune-mediated thrombocytopenia or other. And the other main uh, reason for, and, and obviously we're using much more now uh, injectable tranexamic acid rather than aminocoproic acid, I would be using tranexamic acid in, in basically any case of trauma or excessive bleeding that you have in your in your surgery. Partic if you are a human, which you are, and you go into hospital after having been in a significant car crash or some sort of trauma, you will receive tranexamic acid. And it's been shown in, in multiple studies, meta-analysis, that the outcome in, in trauma patients particularly is improved with the administration of tranexamic acid. The adverse effects of tranexamic acid, technically uh, vomiting. I would always give um, meropotent alongside it, but actually in sick patients, it's funny, isn't it? Giving morphine to sick patients doesn't tend to make them sick. Giving morphines to well bitch spay usually makes them throw up and it's probably a similar sort of thing. And we're giving this at a dose of 15 to 20 milligrams per kilogram IV or PO um, every eight hours. I would even give it actually in, in patients with really severe GI bleeding for whatever reason. So really um, a very... Uh, a very sort of wide uh, spectrum of use. So um, it's a drug that I'm definitely uh, very, very, um, very um, pro-using. So doing as much as we can um, to support these patients um, as possible. But fundamentally, most of them will re uh, receive some sort of transfusion support via plasma products to replace second um, secondary uh, or clotting factors. Having said all of this, the biggest challenge, as we said before, if you do have a patient with an immune-mediated thrombocytopenia, is the fact that we don't have available products that we can just take off the shelf to give platelets back. And actually, that's another reason why uh, tranexamic acid can be helpful to support those patients a little bit more. Okay, so that we've finished our kind of whistle-stop tour of coagulation and we will be moving on to a new and exciting uh, clinical topic next week, which is going to be pancreatitis and probably focusing mainly on cats. Massive thank you again to Catherine for chatting today. An absolute joy. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, even bigger thank you to the VDS for their wonderful support of this podcast and actually we've got a couple of couple of other um, exciting chats to come up so do look out for those and as always I want to say a massive thank you to you um, I actually did want to just um, well for those of you that have made it all the way to the end um, I've had a particularly challenging week um, in the old veterinary world this week and um, I tell you what gives me a huge amount of um, reassurance and and 
it's definitely the light at the end of my day um, is is the support that we get for this podcast so I again I want to thank you I'm, I'm so grateful that we can support people in a tiny little way but you do not understand how much you give back to me and to Karen and to all the team here uh, we truly truly appreciate it on that note we will see you next week